Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Today I'm sitting down with Max Blumenthal, investigative journalist and commentator on Israel and the struggle in Palestine. He's the author of the award-winning book Goliath and the recently published expose The 51-Day War where his on-the-ground reporting in Gaza in the aftermath of Operation Protective Edge documented the harrowing reality of Israel's war crimes. I wanted to find out what he discovered during his coverage of the war and how it relates to the current uprising in Palestine. Max, can you break down what's happening right now and what people are calling a third intifada? It doesn't fit within the parameters of what we know an intifada to be, which is a nationwide uprising directed by political factions. What we're seeing is a completely disorganized rebellion by a generation of youth who've grown up um, after the Oslo Accords, which laid the basis for a two-state solution and the U.S.-led peace process was established. Um, and they've grown up in that reality. It's a reality of separation, exclusion. Um, they've witnessed the destruction of the Palestinian grassroots um, all of the institutions of Palestinian life, especially in East Jerusalem, have been virtually eliminated. Um, in the West Bank, they've been folded into the PA and the NGO infrastructure. And they've seen very little opportunity or hope. Um, the occupation has deepened and tightened. They watched a 51-day assault on the Gaza Strip um, and felt helpless. Um, they've seen the Palestinian a de facto leadership in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority led by Mahmoud Abbas, coordinate security with their occupier and sick their Palestinian forces on them, um, carrying out raids, for example, at Birzeit University. And so this generation has decided to act on its own. This has been building for a long time. Um, but now that this generation has come, come of age, um, they're lashing out at their occupier. They're going out and demonstrating at the friction points of occupation. So, for example, um, at the checkpoint at Beit El in Albire, outside Ramallah, there are regular demonstrations. They're throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at heavily armed soldiers. Um, around Nablus, which is a site of settler terror, and especially in Hebron, where settlers, the most radical settlers, um, in all of Israel, Palestine are embedded in the old city and regularly terrorize and prey on Palestinians. Um, they are carrying out attacks. There are knife attacks inside the Green Line, um, which is a symbolic act. And what they're doing is they're sending a message that as long as we're occupied, there's going to be a price. You're not going to be safe, and you won't be normal. As Netanyahu said recently, we were, we are destined to live by the sword. But in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, in all of the cities inside Israel's interior where most of the Jewish population lives, it will be like we're in Europe. Or as Ehud Barak, a former Israeli prime minister and defense minister said, we'll be a villa in the jungle. And when, these, when young Palestinians enter the villa with knives, or with rocks, or whatever they have, um, they are reminding Israelis, you know, you're not in, you're not, you're not a villa in the jungle. You're the jungle in our villa. You're in the Middle East, and you can't just put up a wall and pretend we're not here. Why is the Al-Aqsa Mosque center to this political struggle? First of all, 
Jerusalem has been separated from the West Bank and Ramallah under the, uh, thanks to the Oslo Accords. And the Oslo Accords provided the basis for a separation regime. The separation regime was manifested in the separation wall, which separates occupied East Jerusalem from the West Bank. The Israelis proceeded to destroy all of the key Palestinian institutions in East Jerusalem, like Orient House, which was supposed to be the future seat of a Palestinian government that would govern from the capital of East Jerusalem. That all moved to the other side of the wall, to Ramallah. And then every other institution proceeded to collapse. The only thing left was the Al-Aqsa Mosque as the symbol of Palestinian nationalism in Jerusalem. To me, it's much more about the Palestinian national struggle than about religion. But in Israeli society, you've seen in Jewish-Israeli society a development where a uh, religious nationalist class has risen in power. Um, they're really reorienting society um, into a theocratic dominionist direction. And for them, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is a symbol because it's the Temple Mount. There were supposedly Jewish temples there 1,300 years ago. And they aim to rebuild the temple as a symbol of the replacement of Israel as a state governed by civil law with a more theocratic, openly Jewish state, uh, what I would call JSIL, or the Jewish state in Israel and the Levant. Uh, the Knesset and, all of, and many of the ministers in Netanyahu's government are religious nationalists. The pressure on Al-Aqsa increases, and the pressure on Jerusalem increases, and the conflict, such as it is, takes on a religious dimension and begins to resemble a clash of civilizations instead of a struggle over rights and land. The Al-Aqsa Mosque has been almost completely encircled by Israeli settlers. And they've accomplished that through brute force, throwing Palestinians out of their home and replacing them with uh, religious ultranationalists. Uh, they've built tunnels under Al-Aqsa Mosque, which actually have uh, destabilized the infrastructural integrity of the old city of Jerusalem. And now they're beginning to prevent Palestinians from praying at Al-Aqsa for the first time so that uh, Jewish religious extremists can ascend and conduct their own kind of prayers. And so all of these disruptions have destabilized, uh, have destabilized Jerusalem. Then you have 300,000 Palestinians in Jerusalem living under occupation with constant pressure from settlers. They're living among the most extreme elements of Israeli society who are armed. They themselves are not armed. The youth have been you know, traumatized by this environment, and they're lashing out, and the friction point is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, and remember, Al-Aqsa Mosque was where the Second Intifada began when Ariel Sharon ascended with his, surrounded by security forces, and it led to a complete bloodbath. It has been another relentless day for the medics here as casualties continue to pour in. Tragically, many of those are children. Neyma is just two and a half years old. She was caught in a missile attack from an F-16. She has a broken nose and a fractured skull. She hasn't spoken a word. We were sleeping. Our house completely collapsed on us. Doctors at the hospital here were unable to save Shahed. Well, the siege on Gaza no doubt plays a role in the anger uh, throughout all of Palestine. Max, you were on the ground and you outlined some harrowing details in your book uh, about what you found. Uh, outline the devastation that took place during last year's 51 
Day War. I immediately, as soon as I entered Gaza, went to Shujaia, which was the, you couldn't, you couldn't really call it a neighborhood. It's more like an entire city east of Gaza City that had been wiped off the map um, by Israeli artillery um, and pretty much every mode of destruction available to the Israelis. Every house I went to there, they weren't really houses, they were ruins of homes, and speaking to elderly women and entire families about having their family members summarily executed in front of them, interviewing paramedics who found a woman, an 80-year-old woman in a chicken coop who had hid there for eight days living off of chicken feed, um, pulling dead families, entire families out of homes and finding that they couldn't pull them out because their limbs would fall off and having to bring in bulldozers to bulldoze bodies into mass graves, interviewing the Rujela family about fleeing tank fire and leaving their severely uh, disabled daughter on the road in her wheelchair and then finding her in her wheelchair a week later riddled with bullets. Uh, these kind of stories were what I heard day after day. I mean, everywhere I went, I was walking through a real-life horror film. And this was the Palestinian experience in Gaza for 51 days. It was like uh, a sequel to the movie Saw. Um, how do you deal with that uh, psychologically? That's the question we have to ask now, because this, the humanitarian situation is worse than it's ever been in history. Um, the United Nations. Uh, Relief Works Agency predicted that Gaza would be uninhabitable by 2020, and it's currently uninhabitable. People are trapped there, most can't leave. Um, and who are the Jewish Israelis, the 300,000 who participated in this operation? How do they think? Netanyahu was reelected, and in a surprise to a lot of Americans, after Operation Protective Edge, you have to go into a very right-wing eliminationist mindset in order to justify what you did, and it's Netanyahu is able to cater to that. Just the amount of violence I witnessed was only the beginning of a nightmare that's continuing um, through the present. The Gaza Strip has, 80% of the residents of the Gaza Strip, 72 to 80% are refugees. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a warehouse for surplus humans. And for the first time, you actually are seeing, for example, a wave of child suicides. Um, I had uh, I interviewed the father of Salam Shamali, who is um, killed on camera. Guys, this one. The hand. He was looking for his wounded cousin, and he was killed. It was reported on um, by international news, um, and the family. It really affected the family to find out. You know, our son was killed and we found out because someone emailed us the video of his killing and we only knew it was him because we recognized the sound of his screams. So Salem's father told me that his other sons are and children are making amanat, um, which is a unique term that doesn't really have a clear English translation, but it means like their last dying wishes. Um, so the violence, um, of course, is on, you know, it's a physical violence, but there's a psychological component to it. The Israelis threatened to bomb the main hospital, the Al-Najjar hospital in Rafah, and so the, everyone had to pour out of the hospital, wounded people, people missing limbs, uh, and the entire medical staff, and the only place left was the uh, Kuwaiti hospital, which is actually a 20-bed 
OBGYN and geriatric clinic in the center of town that's completely unequipped for this kind of um, disaster. And the doctor I met there, Samir Holmes, told me that he was treating amputees on the floor, um, that his own medical staff was coming in dead, uh, and that the carnage got so bad that he had to order ice cream coolers from local shops to store the corpses of infants. Um, and this image that is widely available of four infants in white death shrouds in an ice cream cooler, I think is iconic. It's the image that distills the entire sensibility of Israeli society at this point and how little value they place on Palestinian life. And as Israeli forces were using the Hannibal Directive and kind of indiscriminately shooting even on their captured soldiers, uh, Al-Qassam Brigade was changing its tactics over the last couple of years. We saw it um, act pretty differently during the 51-day war. Talk about what happened there. The, 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 the tactics of Al-Qassam as a guerrilla force in face-to-face -face confrontations with Israeli soldiers was untested. Um, and the Israeli military underestimated their capacity. Through the tunnel network in the south of Gaza, the Al-Qassam brigades and Hamas had um, been able to import some heavy weaponry, like the kind of weapons that um, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon had. I mean, cornet anti-tank missiles, um, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, lots of AK-47s, and uh, you know some 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 heavier machine guns that could be carried. Um, but more importantly. The Al-Qassam brigades imported the tactics of Hezbollah. They may have received some Syrian training um, or indirect Syrian training through Hezbollah. And this proved very effective when the Israeli military invaded um, in July uh, the neighborhood of Shuja'iya. Um, you saw basically local teams of fighters situate themselves in tunnels in and around Shuja'iya and then wait to ambush Israeli soldiers who had initially entered in very lightly armored vehicles, which were supplied by the US military as surplus and were left over from the Vietnam era. Um, and some Qassam sapper teams were able to destroy these vehicles by simply planting charges on them by hand, explosive charges by hand, uh, displaying a lot of bravado. But the most important tactic, I think, that was put on display in Shuja'iya was the willingness to engage Israeli troops at less than 15 meters away for prolonged periods of time. In, during Kasled in 2008, 2009, um, Al-Qassam would stage hit and run attacks. And they learned from Hezbollah that you don't hit and run, you stay, you, you stay in the fight because that neutralizes the two strengths that Israel has over every other military in the Middle East, air power and artillery power. If you have soldiers engaged in face-to-face -face fighting, you can't provide air support or artillery support because you'll kill them. Um, so it, the Israeli uh, military found it, this is the Golani Brigade, it's most elite special forces, who have very little experience actually in real fighting really motivated, well-armed um, well forces. I mean, they're more used to beating up on farmers and stone-throwing kids in the West Bank. Uh, they found themselves losing their lives at a at alarming rate. Injuries were coming in um, by the dozens. Um, and I think it was the night of July 14th. I might be getting the date wrong. Um, 
they decided to retreat and carry out one of the most cowardly military maneuvers in modern military history. Retreat in armored personnel carriers as fast as they could to the border of Israel and Gaza and then unload what amounted to half, un unload with what amounted to half of the artillery pieces in the Israeli military and blanket the entire area with 120 and 155 millimeter howitzers. And that's what resulted in the destruction of Shuja'iyah was actually um, the defeat or the moral defeat of the Israeli military. The most famous operation was at Nahal Az. Um, this was uh, later on in July. A team of Al-Qassam fighters with GoPro cameras attached to their helmets attacked an Israeli military base. The goal was to capture soldiers, I think, which would have been a game changer, would have given them a lot of leverage in negotiations, might have even ended the war. Um, but they managed to kill almost every soldier they encountered. They lost only one member of their team and made it back into the tunnel with uh, one of the soldiers' rifles, which was upheld as a trophy at the end of the war. Um, this operation um, demonstrated, or had two, two effects. One was it demonstrated that the Al-Qassam brigades aren't interested in attacking civilians because Nahalaz is also, the base is part of a kibbutz. I mean, they could have gone and killed civilians, but they chose to engage soldiers. And Al-Qassam General Commander Mohammed Daif stated clearly that we're attacking soldiers while you bring the roofs down on the heads of our civilians. Um, and the second effect it had was um, securing almost unanimous support in Palestinian society, um, including among, you know, Fatawi, you know, Fatah supporting uh, people in Ramallah for the concept of armed resistance. Um, you're used to seeing your relatives and your friends and feel and, and even experiencing yourself humiliation at the hands of Israeli soldiers, especially if you live in Jerusalem. Uh, or one of the areas where settlers are. And for the first time, you see young Palestinian guys dressed up like commandos, giving the Israeli military a bloody nose um, and taking the fight to the enemy. I mean, that had a strong psychological impact in Palestinian society. And so now there's a lot of criticism of Hamas, dissent against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. But I don't, I don't know anyone who would question uh, the importance of maintaining a kind of guerrilla force that's highly militarized and is there to, um, to fight the Israeli military. The Israeli parliament has approved a law that imposes stiff penalties on people convicted of throwing rocks at moving vehicles. Under the law, stone throwers could face 10 years in prison and up to 20 years if it is determined that they intended to seriously harm the occupants in a vehicle. The lawmaker who sponsored the legislation said that one third of arrests in Jerusalem are connected to stone throwing. So the government's going to great lengths to crush resistance there. Uh, the latest measure is the 20-year prison sentence for anyone throwing a stone. Max, talk about the significance of stones in Palestine and why you think this law was passed. In this case, this law was passed by the Israeli parliament, a very extreme law. Um, and members of the Labor Party and the opposition supported it. It wasn't just right-wingers uh, who were determined to throw young people in jail for almost their entire adult life for throwing a stone. It shows how, it shows how threatened um, Israeli society is by the smallest, most uh, minuscule iterations of Palestinian resistance, even symbolic resistance like stones. Um, and now it's become a symbol uh, of resistance and, and, and telling Israelis that they're not welcome.
you know, why are you throwing rocks at a soldier who's, who's wearing a Kevlar vest and is protected against you know, 7.62 millimeter live rounds? Um, the, is the Israelis um, are responding now with unprecedented measures. I went to the hospital in Ramallah in July and uh, interviewed um, a doctor who told me that he was treating dozens of gunshot wounds to the legs um, and that Israel had a shoot to cripple policy. And he provided me with documentation um, which pretty much showed that soldiers were cracking down on demonstrations with live fire to the legs. Not only that, but some of the bullets were what, what Palestinians call ton-ton bullets or dum-dum bullets, which are expanding rounds. Um, so they'll bounce around inside your limbs and expand and really cripple you for life. Um, the Israeli, um, the, this bill to jail stone throwers for 20 years is com complements another measure put into place um, by the Israeli military and police, which allows even members of the Israeli police to shoot demonstrators with 22 caliber rounds from Ruger rifles. The 22 caliber rounds are less likely to kill. They're more likely to cripple. Um, they shatter bones. They often bounce around inside your body. This is standard practice now. Standard practice to shoot demonstrators with live weapons. The Palestinian, unfortunately, instead of uh, uh, instead of building a Gaza Strip as the Singapore of the Middle East, they choose uh, the terror path. They want to pile up as many uh, civilian dead as they can because somebody said they use. I mean, it's gruesome. They use telegenically dead. Palestinians for their cause. They want the more dead, the better. In the letter, and I'll read it to you, you say the formerly populated areas will be shelled in Gaza with maximum firepower. The entire civilian and military infrastructure of Hamas will be destroyed entirely. And then you say those who insist on staying will be required to publicly sign a declaration of loyalty to Israel. People might be surprised to learn that Netanyahu is actually not the most right-wing right. <laughs> Israeli government, um, that it's actually just gotten more and more right-wing over the last decade. Benjamin Netanyahu, I, I've been saying for the last two years, exists at the hollow center of Israeli politics. Um, you know, I talked about the generation of Palestinian youth, the post-Oslo generation, and how they've developed. But within Israeli society, there's been a parallel development um, with the post-Oslo generation that's extremely radical, sees no hope for you know, a, a two-state solution or a peace process. Um, their approach to the Palestinians is that there's no partner for peace and that they only understand force. Um, this is a generation that's adopted a very uh, strongly um, Jewish identity um, and a belligerent Jewish identity as opposed to an, the identity of Israel's founding generation, which was based around a concept of Israeli nationalism, in, which was racist, but which allowed for some place for Palestinians or Arabs. The, the kind of sensibility and identity this generation has adopted leaves no place for anyone who's a non-Jew. Um, and this generation is embodied by the current justice minister, Ayelet Shaked. Um, that bill we talked about to punish stone throwers for 20 years, that was her baby. Um, she ushered it through the Knesset. She's young. Uh, I think she's, you know, she's our age. Um, she's very telegenic. 
Um, she's very popular in Israeli society. She's not a settler. She comes from a core Israeli city. Um, in many ways, she's kind of a carpetbagger. And she is genocidal in her approach to Palestinians. In fact, she called for genocide during Operation Protective Edge for exterminating Palestinian mothers to prevent them from giving birth to little snakes. She's in charge of the Justice Ministry. And you, you look at the direction of Israeli society. You just look at the polls from Israeli Democracy Institute that show that a majority of youth state their refusal to sit in a classroom with an Arab or a non-Jew, that a majority of youth uh, favor a kind of one-state apartheid solution. Um, in two, 2011, in this poll, a plurality of Israelis stated their support for placing Arab citizens of the state of Israel in internment camps during wartime. Uh, Three-quarters of Israelis in a recent poll reported by Times of, the Times of Israel, three-quarters of religious nationalist Israelis, um, declared their support for the full ethnic cleansing of Palestinian citizens of Israel, the 20% of Israel who are Palestinian citizens. And they 80% said that they boycott Arab businesses. So you, you look at the direction of Israeli society, and you have to conclude that there's no hope for change from within, um, that those of us on the outside who want to see a different outcome than perpetual conflict can't work from inside Israeli society. We don't have a place for convincing people. There has to be pressure from the outside. And the pressure has to start here because it's Washington and the US government that has funded radicalization in Israel. They've paid for this whole project because every time Israel builds settlements, every time they give money to the settlers, every time the education ministry brings kids to Hebron to see the settlements, every time that they teach kinder, they decide to teach kindergartners about the Holocaust and scare kindergartners into, into, a, in, into an authoritarian mindset. And every time they assault Gaza and get as much time as they want, the US is there to pay for the whole project and to rearm them. And so they're rewarding radicalism in Jewish-Israeli society. And that's really ultimately why this trend is continuing. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.